You're listening to a Stranger Cast at thestranger.com. Hey, it's Wednesday, September 5th, and I'm Eli Sanders, and this is Blabbermouth, the Stranger podcast in which we talk about what's going on this week. The Kavanaugh hearings began this week and are ongoing. 70 people, as of this moment, have been arrested, and we talked to one of them at the beginning of this week's show. Her name is Tiffany Hankins. After that, Rich Smith and Katie Herzog will talk about what they saw at the Kavanaugh hearings and what Democrats should do next to keep Kavanaugh's nomination from moving forward. Then, Steve Bannon at the New Yorker Festival. A huge controversy on Twitter this week, and it ended up not happening. Bannon got disinvited. We'll talk about whether deplatforming Steve Bannon was a good idea. Finally, some more things to escape into. We've got a Netflix show. We've got a poetry reading and a book of poems recommended by Rich Smith. And we've got a really good podcast that Katie likes. But first, Brett Kavanaugh. Hello, Rich. Hi, Eli. Hi, Katie. Good morning. So I am dying to talk to the both of you as always. But actually, I had a conversation with someone else Someone I'm really interested in hearing from because Are you cheating she, on me with an activist, Eli? Yes. She actually did something, not just with her mouth, like all of us, but with her body and her activism. She got on a plane. Eli, your mouth is part of your body. I would just like to point that out. That's true. But your ideas are not. That's true, too. But this person <laughs> has combined body and ideas into one and has actually done something with their life, you're saying? She got on a plane from Washington State, world headquarters of Blabbermouth, and flew to Washington, D.C. to disrupt the Kavanaugh hearing. She was one of the people you heard screaming at the senators who are rushing through this Supreme Court nomination. Her name is Tiffany Hankins. She is the executive director of NARAL Pro-Choice Washington, and I talked to her on the phone after she got the handcuffs taken off. Let's listen to her. Tiffany Hankins, hello. Hi. You are the executive director of NARAL Pro-Choice Washington, and you recently hopped on a flight from Seattle to Washington, D.C., and got yourself into the first day of the confirmation hearings for Brett Kavanaugh. Why did you put yourself on that plane? Yeah, so the impetus for hopping on that plane is just a feeling of responsibility to the tens of thousands of NARAL members in Washington state who see us as a leader in Washington, um, who, you know, we have champions in Senator Murray and Senator Cantwell, but we have to do more and we have to step up and really put our bodies and our and ourselves on the line. So how did you get into this hearing? I don't know how hard that is to do. Can anyone who's, uh, you know, maybe planning on protesting like you were just show up? Um, <laughs> it, it wasn't quite so easy. Um, I actually flew in on a red eye uh, last night and had to quickly hop a train um, to get in line at very, very early hours of the morning to be allowed to go into the confirmation, uh, the hearing room. And they do, they passed out little uh, tickets for those who stood in line. We stood in line for probably um, about three or four hours in the pretty hot, humid weather. <laughs> and then they lead us and led us into the confirmation room uh, about 20 at a time. Um, and then we were allowed to stay for 20 minutes. 
So did you go in planning to get arrested? I went in with a group of folks who had planned on causing a disruption uh, during the confirmation hearing, because as you know, the this hearing is being sped up and the unprecedented uh, dropping of uh, Kavanaugh's record on senators late last night, as if they could read 42,000 documents, you know, in the span of a few hours mm-hmm. uh, is cause for us to, uh, to, to cry out and to ensure that the, the voice of the people is heard. So me and, um, Quite a few other folks today went in there with the intent to uh, to stand up, to disrupt the meeting, and to plead that our senators block this confirmation. So what did you cry out when you disrupted the meeting? Well, right before we walked into the, um, into the confirmation room, uh, Senator Feinstein was talking about uh, Roe versus Wade and the impacts that she saw in her lifetime in the 50s and the 60s on the devastating impacts when women don't have access to safe uh, abortion and we and safe and legal abortion. And we um, so went in there feeling very inspired um, by her words. And so when it came time for me to stand up and, and shout, my colleague uh, who is from Narrow, Missouri, um, was talking about, stood up and talked about and, and shouted about her own abortion, having to travel uh, to another state. And so I uh, repeated the what Senator Feinstein had said, and that Roe versus Wade is too important, and we cannot let it roll back on our watch, and that women's lives are at stake here. And uh, that was probably about the time when someone grabbed you and dragged you out of the room? That's correct. <laughs> so what happens, just quickly, I, we've all seen the images of protesters getting dragged out of the hearing room, uh, but what happens on the other side of that door? Well, on the other side of the door, everyone's put in handcuffs, um, and then we were taken down to a, a, a part of the uh, Capitol that, um, you know, isn't really on the Capitol tour. <laughs> um, <laughs> we were t- taken to kind of the basement um, and loaded up in vans and taken down to the station where at least over 50 people um, were being processed, I would say, pretty pretty quickly for, for you know, for an action of this size. We were just kind of, we were relieved that it was air-conditioned. <laughs> And you're out on some kind of bail or bond right now? Uh, yes, yes. We, um, the, the groups we were working with this morning ensured that everyone who had signed up for civil disobedience was prepared to uh, post bail same day. So how does it feel? You disrupted this historic hearing and you played, uh, you know, a small but uh, bigger than most people's part, part in, uh, in how these hearings are unfolding how does it feel to have done this? It feels important to have done it um, and that we have to keep going. It's a very narrow window for us to win this fight, but it's but I strongly believe that it is winnable. And if we keep everyone calling their senators nonstop and keep the spotlight on these swing votes, uh, then we can be successful. And the stakes are just too high for, not, for us to not give it our all right now. So we have listeners all over the country. If they're not able to do what you did in going to D.C., uh, you talked about the swing votes. Who exactly should they be calling? Um, call, you know, calling your personal senator is extremely impactful. There are a few uh, identified swing votes, certainly, but we also need to shore up the uh, Democrat votes and ensure that they are leading the strong, leading the leading the fight, and are staying strong. Uh, even in Washington state, you know, we haven't yet gotten a firm 
uh, no on the confirmation from Senator Cantwell. So you keep keep up the phone calls and uh, and call your senators. And then, you know, once your senator comes out as a firm no on the confirmation, um, you know, look at the swing votes in potentially Senator Collins or Senator uh, Murkowski. All right. Tiffany Hankins, thanks for telling us about what happened to you and uh, good luck with the rest of the proceedings related to your arrest. Thanks for coming on the show. All right. Thanks, Eli. So that was Tiffany right on. She, uh, like I said, actually getting something done. Rich, you watched from afar from the comfort of your couch, the Kavanaugh hearings a little bit. Oh, yeah. yeah, I saw a little bit. I saw some uh, saw some of the clips. I wasn't there for the whole eight-hour shebang, but so, uh, I was looking at it. In addition to the 70 people who got arrested, which includes Tiffany, the Democrats came out swinging, That's right? That's right. They started with a disruption. Kamala Harris from California, a motion to uh, adjourn the proceedings right, right away. She was backed up by Klobuchar and a couple other um, senators. Um, Mark, Markey? Blumenthal, I can't remember. Blumenthal, yeah. They all came in. Um, I was impressed with uh, White House's Senator White House's performance, given the 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 Brett Kavanaugh receipts uh, about all the dark money that's being used to press his um, uh, or to to get him into the um, Supreme Court. And uh, I like, you know, big fan of Kamal Harris's lean in, like her slight like head nod and the kind of incredulous way she looks at people and nods her head whenever she's giving them the business. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Loved all that. And then there's Kavanaugh's pro-law line where he said he was a pro-law judge and mm-hmm. um, I guess I'm a pro-talk podcaster and a pro-tea tea drinker and I'm definitely pro-Tiffany Hankins uh, protester. protester. Yeah. <laughs> Katie, what do you think? Uh, I think that this is a sad, sad show and we're all going to lose in the end and I, I really appreciate the effort people are putting into this and I just wish that there was any chance that it would make the slightest bit of difference and we could all get in this time machine and go back and Merrick Garland would be our new Supreme Court justice. That's kind of what you're hearing from some of the Democrats who are still pissed about what happened to Merrick Garland where Obama's nominee did not even get a hearing in the Republican-controlled Senate Interestingly, some of the ancient, ancient Republican senators uh, who are running this hearing are still pissed about Robert Bork. And I wish that Dan was here to talk about Robert Bork. Dan is still recovering from his surgery. He'll be back soon. He's doing well. Um, But as Dan would tell you, Robert Bork is the guy who conspired with Nixon to execute the Saturday Night Massacre. And then a few years later, the Republicans tried to put him up for the U.S. Supreme Court maybe a reward, maybe they just thought he was a really good potential jurist, and he got borked. It became a verb. George he, W. Bush he, also, what was her name? Um, uh, oh, yeah, she got Myers. A hearing, though, didn't she? Was My, it Harriet, Harriet Myers? Myers? Yeah. 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 Did yeah. she get a hearing? She got a hearing. I mean, this was back in the days of the filibuster, where it yeah. took 60 when senators. When you could filibuster. <laughs> right, so now, and, you know, the Democrats are somewhat complicit in this. Harry Reid removed the filibuster for lower court judges, which is why it's super easy now for Trump to pack the courts with just a majority in the Senate. And so it went from needing, I think, 60 votes to a simple majority for lower federal courts. And then Mitch McConnell went ahead and did the nuclear option, which was to remove the filibuster for the Supreme Court. So now you only need a simple majority to get a Supreme Court nominee onto the court. And here we are. Yeah, like Katie says, Brett Kavanaugh is probably 
going to get on the court, barring some more creative disruption from Kamala Harris and anyone else. I'm so I, I'm so frustrated by this because it's like, yeah, on the one hand, obviously, Kavanaugh is going to get through. But on the other hand, the stakes are too high, like Tiffany Hankins was saying, to just not do anything. I don't want to live in a world where we looked back and the Democrats just... So it stood silently, you know, while Lindsey Graham filleted fucking Kavanaugh for, you know, f- five hours. And so, but at the same time, I realized that's a, that's a farce in a, in a show. So my only call is to make the farce in the show go way up. Uh, I think that, you know, uh, it would be fun to see some Democrats get uh, uh, arrested, uh, which, is, which is possible. Um, they could, you know, it, this is the hearing portion right in the in the judiciary committee and mm-hmm. so if they don't show up you know then the 11 republicans can just vote kavanaugh through to the senate floor but once we get to the senate floor we have a quorum busting stuff that can happen and like weird senate parliamentary rules where uh, all the democrats can refuse to show up for the confirmation vote on kavanaugh and then the senate parliamentarian has to like compel uh, senators to come to the vote who are who are absent. At which point you have the Capitol Police tracking down Democratic senators and their offices are around town, dragging them into the uh, Senate floor and, and forcing them to vote. Now that people are calling it a circus and a farce, now let's see that. Just yeah. wait. Yeah. I'm, I'm with that. It's this all. It's we're starting. To, it's starting to feel sort of British, you know. Like people yeah. are yelling at each other. I can see wigs coming out. It feels kind of good. I mean, is there any chance that they could just? delay until november is that even a possibility well what rich is talking about might be a way i hadn't heard this one yet it's kind of exciting Uh, the republicans by the way are saying this is mob rule and the democrats are saying no this is the noise of democracy it's kind of like the fight that we have almost every episode on this (laughs) show about behavior on college campus but this is the senate and they are fighting over mob rule direct democracy and Maybe, yeah, if Rich is right and they can all, all the Democrats can go hole up in a hotel in Oregon. <laughs> Malheur. Get under the Malheur. Uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> wildlife <laughs> refuge. Yeah, because yeah. this did happen. I can't remember where it was. I want to say Texas, but I might be wrong. Yeah, like, I know what you're talking about. All Oklahoma? the Democrats yeah, in yeah. a state legislature yeah. crossed state lines yeah. and went and hit out in some other state where the Capitol Police of, you know, Texas, say, if I'm getting it right, had no authority to arrest him and drag him back, and they delayed. I, and yeah. if, I, sh- I should say, though, that if the Democrats start pulling these kinds of parliamentary sort of maneuvers, the uh, Senate, I think, can the Republicans can vote to change the rules and then just be like, okay, now you don't have to vote. Like, like, like they, they, they can pull some trickery on their end that's very bureaucratic and uh, make it so th- that no, they're they going to get like, what they want. Yeah, they, yeah. they have the power. Yeah. We're fucked. All right. Well, but, but <laughs> <laughs> Jinx. Sphinx. Sphinx. As Tiffany said, you can still call Democratic senators and Susan Collins. Uh, there's a lot of fuss being kicked up among Democratic uh, liberal groups right now about Chuck Schumer better hold the Democratic caucus together and every single Democrat in the Senate better vote no, which is a sign that some are wavering, like Maria Cantwell in Washington State, who has not come out and firmly yet said she's a no. So you can, first of all, uh, ride herd on your Democratic uh, Senate caucus members and make sure they are where you want them to be and 
Susan Collins, and Anne. Especially, yeah, uh, Joe Donnelly in Indiana for our Indiana listeners. Uh, Joe Manchin, obviously, in West Virginia. Lisa Murkowski in Alaska. Susan Collins. The idea, even if we don't get these people to vote, um, uh, against Kavanaugh, uh, will make it this vote that they take so toxic that it will uh, endanger their future um, uh, electoral success. And so that 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 that's the idea. Or that that that's the hope. You can at least do that. And if Tiffany Hankins can get arrested over this, trying to defend, among other things, a woman's right to choose and control her own reproductive health, then you can pick up the phone. Next. We are going to talk about Steve Bannon, sorry, but in the context of a controversial invite he got to speak. So, Katie. Yes. You are an expert on deplatforming. An expert, yes. I would call myself that. And I, I read some articles. You're holding on to this platform. I enjoy as it. As tightly as possible. No one's getting you off this one. But uh, Steve Bannon kicked off a platform that he was being given in New York by the New Yorker Festival. David Remnick, the editor of the New Yorker, had invited him to this festival that happens every year. They talk about ideas and other things. And when Bannon was announced as the headliner for this festival, Twitter woke up. Oh, yeah, sure did. Not just Twitter, but lots of people who were scheduled to um, be a part of the New Yorker Festival. Lots of famous people like, for instance, Jim Carrey and Bo Burnham. Although, and Jimmy Fallon, too. I think he I, that might have been a joke. I'm not sure. But I did see a tweet that Jimmy Fallon, like if if. Uh, if Steve Bannon is in, I'm out, which I find kind of funny that the dude who like ruffled Donald Trump's Trump's hair is like mm-hmm. willing to take a stand on this. Anyway, so a lot of people who are part of the festival, as, as well as staff writers and other staff members at The New Yorker and people who, who contribute to The New Yorker were appalled by this decision on David Remnick's part to invite Steve Bannon to um, be a part of this festival. He was going to headline it. And so at within hours of the announcement, um, Bannon was out. And I am in the minority of thinking that this is that Bannon should have remained invited. So you wrote that it probably wasn't a good idea to invite him in the first place. It was an unwise idea because this was inevitable. But it was a worse idea to cancel him. Right. So first of all, I would also like let me say that while I think it was an unwise idea to invite Steve Bannon, I think that because this was always going to be the result of it. And so David Rimnick put himself in a horrible position. Um, however, I personally would love to see David Rimnick interview Steve Bannon. He's a tough interviewer. He's super experienced. And doing it in front of a live, hostile audience to watch Steve Bannon try to justify his platform in front of all of these people who disagree on such a fundamental level sounds to me enlightening. Can you articulate the argument that was on Twitter and elsewhere for denying him this platform? Because a lot of people felt like right. he should be denied the platform. So the two, there's sort of three arguments. Normalizing Steve Bannon, you're like by giving him this platform, you're normalizing Steve Bannon. My response to that is he's already normalized. Donald Trump is in the fucking White House. Like we can't get any more normal than that. Um, two, it's giving him a platform, which is kind of the same thing. Um, and then also uh, that 
by giving him an honorarium, which the New Yorker was doing, attendees didn't want to be, you know, like lining Steve Bannon's pockets, which I'm very sympathetic to. Mm-hmm. But I also think that you can just make the decision to not go to that, to not pay for that particular event at the festival if you were attending the New Yorker festival. So, Rich, I'm going to take a wild guess and say you are pro deplatforming Steve Bannon. Yeah, I mean, I guess I would disagree with, you know, almost all of that. Uh, just, I mean, even in the logic of, uh, I wouldn't have invited him in the first place uh, because this was inevitable and that it it was a worse idea to disinvite him. I don't think so, just based even within the terms of that argument, right? So uh, the game that Bannon is playing here is one of legitimacy. This is a New York story about a fancy, bougie New York event and a Steve Bannon, like, too bad boy for the New York, the New Yorkers' bougie ideas festival or is he not too bad boy like that those are the stakes here right and so like he wins either way if he's if he is not invited he's steve bannon is like a failure the only thing that he wants to do is to gain legitimacy in the high class bourgeois world and he doesn't have that legitimacy yet Right, so that that that's his that's his goal. Um, it's hard to think of the man as a failure when the when his his candidate is is in the White House right now. Like he might be on the outs right now, but he's busy in Europe trying to 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 spread his brand of fascism in Europe, and he's no, like, he's doing in Europe what he's did. To, I mean, we can address. I'm I'm happy to address that in a second. I just want to get this the deep the it was a, a bad idea to disinvite and point out the it's a bad idea because Remnick. Uh, plays his game, invites him, takes the bet that maybe it's going to be a controversial, and so more people are going to buy tickets to this festival, which of course is good for the you know to to support the New Yorker. And then, uh, oops, uh, now he's de- he doesn't have a festival anymore because people pull out, and then so he disinvites him, and then he doesn't have to pay for you know <laughs> to find more people who are willing to share a stage with one of the most odious figures in American politics. Uh, and then yeah, if he keeps him on, then. Because of journalism, everyone has to go watch the Steve Bannon show at the New Yorker. We get fucking endless op-eds from columnists from here until October talking about whether or not it's good for Steve Bannon to have to... Suddenly, Steve Bannon has what he wants, which is headlines for a whole month instead of this sort of short burst of headlines. So from Steve Bannon's perspective, I think it's actually... Or uh, from the New Yorker's perspective, I think it's actually best that they disinvited him so because Remnick, not, they're not giving him what he wants. Just to jump in quickly, Remnick wrote like a two-page explanation of what he was thinking. And one of the things he says is like, I intended to be tough. I wanted to, you know, argue with him or press him, put his ideas under pressure. And also people have been interviewed in the past, I think by New Yorker uh, staffers who are odious. George Wallace, Ayatollah Khomeini, uh, Remnick lists these interviews as examples of pressing, putting pressure on the ideas of figures interviewed who, in the paper or interviewed in the the New Yorker uh, that in, in, a com- in a comfortable theater in, in New York. Yeah, but not. He also pointed them. out that having an audience there doesn't make it an easier an easier interview for Steve Bannon as opposed to him being on a couch just with David Remnick. Like that is going to be easier for Steve Bannon than being in an, in an auditorium full of people who want to see him fucking dead. Okay, <laughs> not really. I mean, right? I mean, the, the, those people are not in direct like in the direct line of sight, or some of them might not be in the direct line of sight of the consequences of Bannonite-type policies. I mean, this guy is a white nationalist. You think that the, the people uh, who go to The New Yorker are, going, are fans of Steve Bannon, they're just going to, like, like 
like clout. I'm not off. saying they're fans of Steve Bannon. I'm saying they have the luxury of watching this as the like the people watching exactly the Civil War on the hill should, on the top. Is, I think I, there, there, you know, there was just a report today that 500 um, uh, children are still separated from their families so as a result of these xenophobic policies. So don't you think that the people who aren't policies. affected by Steve Bannon's policies should be forced to see the man in up close? And, and we've seen the man up close. We saw the man up close and read everything he ever had to say during 2016 during the horrible relitigation and of. Uh, of 2016 in 2017 we know who this guy is we know what his white supremacist policies are we know where they lead i don't think that we need to drag him in like a jaguar in a cage and say look this is the guy responsible for the you know uh inflaming racism and, and, and sexism in america because you know he's one of many and i would just add if you really want to do the whole you know remnick versus bannon thing we could do it right now are you ready D- dan uh, or, sorry, <laughs> that's not even the biggest compliment I've gotten from you in a while. Uh, Eli, Eli. <laughs> my, my biceps just grew by 12 <laughs> inches. <laughs> you feeling the power of muscles? Yes. Gym sculpted muscles. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. Well, you're now David Rednick. I'll, I'll, oh, I'll give you an. Jesus. I'll give you all an. Right. Biceps are deflating. Okay, <laughs> but my skin is tautening. Right, and I'll I'll become Steve Bannon, and my my skin is now um, <laughs> pocked with liver uh, spots, and I look like a giant uh, bag of pa- baked potatoes. Now, tell me, uh, ask me, uh, hey. Uh, are you, are you a white nationalist? Do you believe in a white ethnic I'll, I'll do. Really, the question from Remnick would be like, what is wrong with you? But he would well, say it in in a different, like very uh, Upper West Side disdainful way. He would be like, you devoted your intellectual energy to electing a racist, using racist dog whistles and divisive language and ultra-nationalist ideology, aren't you ashamed? No, I'm not. I was radicalized by a French novel, a xenophobic French novel, and I used the money that I made on Wall Street to um, artificially nope. inflate my intelligence. No, nope. That's it. End scene. Nope. That's wait, all wait. <laughs> Can I... Here's an edit. Sorry, edit. What, oh. what Bannon would say, and I think this is actually what you and other people are scared of and should be scared, scared of. of. Yes, because what he would say is, Dave Remnick, you need to get out of the Upper West Side more. You need to talk to the people that I talked to at the Trump rallies. Donald Trump, as flawed as he is, was giving voice to an anger in this country that you do not understand. And I am angry, too. Yeah. These people were totally screwed by the financial crash of 2008, by the fact that Obama didn't send any bankers to jail. All these things that you and your magazine sometimes fulminate about, well, you never saw the actual consequences in the areas where real Americans lived. You paid a lot of lip service to this stuff, but you didn't follow through. You didn't talk to real people. So I'm sorry if you don't get out of the Upper West Side enough, but I have been to rural America. I have talked to these people. Well, he's a, a hedge fund manager. <laughs> he is, I, I but kidding. he plays a populist on TV, and so does Donald Trump. And guess what? It's a hit show. You guys are platforming Steve Bannon, and I find it very dangerous. Look, my point about all of this is that by disinviting him, he has won. He is back in the news cycle. This is, and it feeds into this this false narrative that the left is the party that the that Democrats, that the left, that left is that liberals are the are the intolerant ones. This is like this will become a Trump talking point. We are feeding into this narrative by giving in every time somebody has a 
pitches a fit on Twitter. And my point is that disinviting him rips headlines that would have been his if he stayed in for another month and that we live in two completely separate worlds and it doesn't matter if people are scared of liberal intolerance or this feeds into the narrative of liberal intolerance because guess what? <laughs> There's plenty of examples that they could already choose from to back up their point if they want to make that point. We live in two separate um, you know, uh, alternative realities and you can't shame Steve Bannon on stage and have that work for anybody but Steve Bannon anymore. Or we'll you, never find out. <laughs> yeah, that's true. We yes, won't. we will. You can go to The Economist. Sorry. He's also speaking at The Economist's um, uh, theater or festival of ideas. And he was also at like an Aspen festival or whatever for CNBC the other day. It, this is really a New Yorker story about whether or not um, Bannon can uh, ascend to the ranks of the New York bourgeoisie. And you can find him elsewhere. He, he's around. I hope Remnick follows through or is able to follow through on what he eventually got to with this. He, he didn't. It was pretty artful, his statement. And I don't think there's exactly an admission of error in there. But he did say that he would now prefer to, you know, really press him in a journalistic way. In other words, not on a stage in front of a paying audience, which, Katie, you're you're saying also, like, the paying part does get a little bit of a problem, especially uh, paying Steve Bannon to appear. But to like put him under the journalistic microscope and kind of uh, be the mediator between his ideas and the public and and really scrutinize the ideas themselves, if that's the aim. So that could be good. But just, don't you think that people will have people will pitch fits when The New Yorker comes out with a, if New Yorker Radio Hour does an interview with Steve Bannon or if there's a profile of Steve Bannon in the paper, people will pitch a fit about it. I mean, this is like this is what happens now. This is what happens every time a white nationalist is given attention. This is like this is yeah. part of, it's part of the cycle. I do think there is a thing that Rich said that rings really true and just makes me sad because I don't know the way out of it. But as I uh, took it in, part of what you're saying is we live in these two separate realities and anything that happens in the reality of the New Yorker Festival is going to be exploited in the reality of Breitbart, Drudge Report, Fox News, the alternate universe that the right lives in. And it's going to be twisted into a funhouse mirror version of what actually happened and you can't do anything about that so we just need to tend to our own ideological garden and why would we allow someone we already disagree with who we just have discredited all of his ideas why would he, we allow him into our garden that's but this, basically uh, this the idea argument. that uh, i agree that we live in two different americas but i'm of the opinion that we should try to bring those two americas together i mean ultimately i think that like the polarization between the parties and in, in this country is incredibly destructive and like it's always been bad, but it's a hell of a lot worse now than it was. And even I saw data polls going back to the 1970s and Republicans and Democrats used to have like apparently like they didn't hate each other. I don't know. It sounds like I wasn't alive then. Maybe you guys can tell me about it, but <laughs> sounds weird. We'll have to get Dan back for that. I want to just toss out one more way of viewing this, which I thought was totally refreshing and uh, appreciated hearing from Matt Pierce, your friend at the L.A. Times, Rich. He said, okay, this is maybe the same old culture war deplatforming. Can you have rational debate about ideas anymore? This is that same type of story, sure. But actually what this is is a labor story. This is the writers of The New Yorker threatening to withdraw their labor from their boss over what he did and winning. There was the outrage on Twitter, but more important, this guy was saying, was 
the Pulitzer Prize winners at the New Yorker saying, and one of them uh, in particular saying, I don't want this to happen very publicly, and others writing to him personally. And all of a sudden, he had a mutiny on his hands from his staff. And that was very dangerous. And that's why he had to change his mind. So just another lens for this, there's this kind of unresolvable for right now debate about whether it was a good idea or not. But Matt Pierce has this analysis of this is actually a labor victory and we should view it that way. Yeah, and what I liked was that David Remnick changed his mind and allowed himself to change his mind and not feel cowed or, you know, whatever. He was like, okay, my staff makes good points. The public, my readers make good points. Maybe I have overstepped the lines. He was a bigger person to take criticism and make a change. That that's rare in an editor. I think. Did you say see uh, Malcolm Gladwell's tweet about this? Yes. He was like the like the only New Yorker contributor to come out in favor of of inviting Steve Bannon. He said um, something like, "When you only invite people you like, it's called a dinner party." He also said, and not to see, you just set the fuse on Rich, and I'm just like add, setting another fuse. But here's. <laughs> we can't talk about this anymore. <laughs> this is a New York media story. That's... I just want to, I, I, I have to, in honor of Dan, because I think he actually would really agree with this, I have to add Malcolm Gladwell's second tweet in response to his first tweet, uh, where, where he said, yeah, if you just only invite people who agree with you, it's a dinner party. He also adds, and. Sometimes a platform is a gallows. In other words, the idea that you can, you can, yeah, putting Steve Bannon up on stage could be problematic. It could also be a public beheading. But we just acted out what exactly would have happened. <laughs> that wouldn't have been a gallows. It would have allowed the New Yorker audience to do their favorite thing, which is flagellate themselves about thinking that flyover country exists. And in Steve Bannon world, it would not be a gallows. It would be, uh, it would, it would, it would. Give him the legitimacy, the New Yorker, hoity-toity, fucking Tony legitimacy that he still doesn't have. All right. Last word goes to Rich, as always. Next, we will talk about some delightful poems and episodes of Netflix and even a podcast that you can disappear into if you're trying to run away from all this shit. Rich, you brought a baby book to the podcast this week. Is there something you want to tell us? Well, it's got baby in the title. It's one of my favorite new books of poetry out from Wave Books, a uh, publisher based out of Seattle and New York. It's by Chelsea Minnis. It's called Baby, I Don't Care. Ah, your kind of baby book. That's right. I (laughs) I don't (laughs) care. Uh, And uh, it's great. It's a kind of satire um, of... The, a wealthy person who is very self-interested and then but sometimes it gets so satirical that it becomes very real and, and mm. kind of heartbreaking and so I, I heavily I, I love I just love the voice um, and uh, I love the way uh, and, and I love I love the jokes I would read it but do we have time we have time for a short poem yeah. I'll give you a short poem just so you can kind of get into the language of, uh, of the book Into this hostile world, I bring a special laziness. I like to go swimming after cocktails. Then I put on sunglasses and write a poem. I guess I better make it hot and shiny. This can only lead to compliments. As usual, I've had my usual success. Now let me send myself some flowers. Mother was a famous bareback rider and father was a pool shark. It makes the others crazy the way I lounge. Someday, I'll be taken to jail in my tennis shorts. 
That was from a poem titled The Autobiography of Rich Smith. <laughs> That's for Tiffany Hankins by Chelsea uh, Minnis uh, called Baby I Don't Care. I'd also heavily plug uh, a book called Severance. It's a new novel by Ling Ma. It's uh, about um, uh, a fever uh, coming over uh, from, uh, from China, and it uh, turns everyone into routinized people. And it, it's a zombie thriller uh, that's secretly an office satire, and it's really funny, and I really love the voice. And um, it's also about living in New York. So um, Ling Ma's Severance and uh, Chelsea Minnis' Baby, I Don't Care. Katie, you've been listening to a new podcast that you love. Yeah, this podcast is from Radiotopia, and it's called Everything is Alive. It is interviews with inanimate objects. And it sounds weird, but it's it's like... <laughs> it sounds it's, relaxing. It's, it's so relaxing. I listen to it while I'm drifting off to sleep, and it's it like... It's relaxing, but it's also really funny, and there's a lot of emotion there, and you would be surprised that, like, a pillowcase or a can of discount Coca-Cola would be able to, like, sort of make you feel things. But so does someone voice the inanimate yeah, and object? Yeah, and all the stories are actually true. So the so the producer, his name is Ian Shillog, the host, and he's, uh, and he's interviewing, I don't know, his friends, people, and they're telling sort of real stories, but they're interjecting. They're, they're, they're acting as though they're the thing, but they're telling real stories from their lives. Um, and it's, you know, it's surreal, but also like, it's very well done. It, it, it just, I don't know. It, it feels sort of, uh, like a great short story, each one. And quickly to keep my promise that we would give you a show also something to watch on Netflix. So I very late to this game started watching comedians in cars getting coffee, which I thought would be terrible. I was kind of bored with Jerry Seinfeld. What could we possibly get from this that is new? And it's actually quite, quite entertaining. It's funny. There are interesting conversations in these cars. Jerry Seinfeld's weird, insane obsession with the minutia of the history of American cars is actually fascinating. And I kind of learned some things <laughs> each episode. And uh, I'll just plug one that I thought was particularly good. He rides around with Margaret Cho. And Margaret Cho has just totally bombed at a show in New Jersey at which she tried to make a rape joke and the audience turned on her. And she's dealing with the fallout of this and thinking that maybe she'll go back and do a kind of like a listening session, tries trying to make up with all these audience members. And this gets them into talking about, you know, what you can and can't say in public right now and so on. And Margaret Cho tries to explain intersectionality to Jerry Seinfeld. And that is worth watching. <laughs> So the show, if you haven't heard of it or seen it, is Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee. And uh, I very, very late to this game tell you it's worth it. They're all short, like 15 minutes. You've got time for it. Katie, thank you. Thank you. Rich, thank you. Thanks. And that's the show. If you've got something you want to say to me, Katie Herzog, or Rich Smith, call the Blabberphone, 206-302-2063, or dive on into our Facebook group. It's the Blabbermouth podcast facebook group thanks to ahamefile j aluo for making the music we use on the show each week and to nancy hartunian for bringing our blabbering mouths to your ears <laughs>